Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell, sitting across from me, George Ellick. And what do we like to do? We like to talk about the EFL. We like to look back at the EFL weekend. And nothing else. And nothing else. So we're going to get straight into things at championship level. George, I've paired up a few teams that caught the eye on the weekend. The first pair of teams are two promoted sides that picked up very tidy 3-0 wins. Luton beating Bristol City 3-0 and Charlton beating Derby 3-0. Shall we start with, with Luton Town? This was, to all intents and purposes, their best performance in the Championship this season. Yeah, it strikes me this was a weekend across all three leagues where we saw some teams who haven't had the best of starts or some teams we haven't really spoken much about having you know, the results of the season and the performance of the season to go alongside it. And this Luton victory against Bristol City is certainly one of those. Um, Bristol City, well fancied by many smart people before the season started. And on the pitch, and in terms of actual kind of points gained, um, had reflected that. But Well, they hadn't lost since opening day against Leeds. Indeed. But or opening weekend, I should say. Possibly signs. I mean, it's it's easy now to sit here after Luton have beaten them 3-0 and say this was coming. But we had mentioned on, on a couple of the recent podcasts that maybe Bristol City um, were picking up points not fortuitously, but they weren't necessarily going to be as rampant as they um, as they had been. But I don't think anyone saw Luton um, dominating this game as they did. Um, really had had the better of the game the whole time. It took until the 40, 56th minute to break the deadlock through Mpanda with a fantastic strike coming in, uh, cutting inside from the, from the left. Um, and they continued, went, went for the jugular. And you feel like for Graham Jones, this is a bit of a... Um, a landmark victory for him, I guess. It's it's the one time. I mean, they've, they've obviously picked up some good points this season already. The Barnsley performance, probably the the cream until Saturday, but this is a case of them um, going toe to toe with a team who have promotion aspirations, playing them off the park, putting the goals away to to show their dominance in the game, and um, and it gives them a bit of a platform now to to show that they're not necessarily you know nailed on for. A relegation fight. It puts them up into 16th place, puts a bit of breathing room. Uh, I think it's five points now between them and Huddersfield in 22nd. So a bit of space to maybe dream of something a little bit better. Yeah, it was, it was a good day to play Bristol City. Normally so much better than this away from home and, and essentially just chucking in a bit of a stinker. But that's not to take anything away from, from Luton and Graham Jones, who I'm, I'm definitely interested in his start at Luton and in management. I quite enjoy the way he expresses himself in post-match interviews. Uh, and possibly we're, we're seeing that he's now working out his best system for this team. On opening day, I was there at Kenilworth Road. They drew with Middlesbrough. One thing that was very notable, and of course it was early in the season and players were a little rusty, that Peli Radek and Panzu, potentially not that suited to playing at the base of a diamond in a team that wanted to to keep the ball retained possession, that sort of responsibility, he didn't seem to thrive with. He maybe didn't have the mentality that that a more natural defensive playmaker or defensive midfield playmaker would have. But what we do know he's good at, carrying the ball in midfield, a goal threat, of course, both uh, arriving into the box, but also from range. We saw that on the weekend. Um, he looks like he's thriving. His goal on the weekend means that and Panzu's now scored in the conference, in League Two, in League One, and in the Championship. So that was a, a, a nice stat. Do you re- reckon he'll ever score in the Premier League, Pelly Ruddock and Panzu? Uh, it's a very good question. It wouldn't be a massive surprise given age on his side, and you know, yeah, possibly. He, here's the scenario I think where he does has a, a good season in the Championship. Um, uh, you're not going to enjoy this. Uh, Luton fans, but some other championship team towards the top half of the table picks him up, then has a good season next year, wins promotion with Peli Ruddock and Panzu involved in that team. And then up in the Premier League, they probably sign loads of players, which means Panzu becomes more of a bench player, but he still comes off to score a goal away at Burnley uh, around Christmas time when the games are coming thick and fast. So yes, is the answer. It's really, some really nice speculation. I mean, just in terms of a really weird segue, um, one player who has had a chance but hasn't scored in the Premier League is Izzy Brown. Um, and it's fair to say that we're now seeing after a couple of really frustrating years I think Brown is um, looking like a really sharp signing here Uh, interesting to note that the two loans that didn't necessarily go to plan with Brighton and Leeds two big clubs um, where he really struggled to make an impact having come off the back of um, successful loans at Rotherham and Huddersfield and you just feel like he's maybe a player who thrives being a bigger fish in a smaller pond thrives being that flair player that they can rely on to, to create Another really good performance from him on Saturday. And at 22 years old, 
his career was starting to to look quite familiar in terms of Chelsea Loney's coming into the, the championship and still struggling to make an impact. But I think that now we're seeing that he is a cut above and he's going to be a really important for player, player for Luton going forward. Lastly on Luton, uh, the key for me, the clean sheet, not enough of them so far in this championship campaign. And notable that Mr. Simon Sluger was not involved, not in goal for Luton on the weekend. James Shea back in the side and keeping a clean sheet. I think that will have been a a popular decision from Jones for many Luton fans. Uh, certainly spoken to one or two who, who aren't ready to just chuck Sluger in the bin, say that apart from the obvious high-profile mistakes that he's made, but he, he looks technically good. Um, and it's just whether those mistakes are uh, all coming all at once or whether that's something that will will stay with him. Um, but he is the club record signing, so I'm, I'm sure that they won't just bin him off completely. Um, uh, how about the other promoted team that won 3-0 this weekend? And, and we must give a nod to Adam Murray, caretaker manager of Barnsley, who got a good point in his first game in interim charge. But it's all about Charlton Athletic thrashing Derby 3-0 at the Valley um, with friend of the pod, uh, competitor of the pod, of course, as someone who we've taken on uh, on foot golf, available on our YouTube channel. Search for Not the Top Twenty podcast. Johnny Jackson was in the dugout, and Lee Bowyer was in the stands serving a touchline ban. No surprise that JJ masterminded a three nil win here. Um, George, there's two parts to this, isn't there? We're going to talk about some negatives with Derby's performance, but just in terms of Charlton possibly their best performance and there have been a few good ones but in terms of actually really putting a team away and, and fully deserving a dominant win uh, they looked very impressive yeah again um, Derby basically didn't really register as an attacking force until they were 3-0 down and, and, and that is and even then they barely created anything uh, and that's testament to um, Charlton and to the way they set up uh, Macaulay Bond coming in uh, and playing the way he has done mm. in, in Lyle Taylor's absence has been a big positive for them all across the park, they were just the, the quite comfortably the better team here. Um, and you Jake know, Forster Cassie said it was almost too easy. <laughs> Basically, suggested that they they were sort of working harder and that they they really felt like they could just overcome this Derby team, which is interesting. I think the, the way they're set up is always very impressive. Um, I think Charlton are are very adept and very good at not giving teams who are used to getting some space on the ball. They, they, they don't get that. We saw that with Fulham the other day. We saw it again here with Derby where none of the attacking players um, could get any rhythm. You saw the likes of Lawrence and Patterson really, really struggling to do anything. And Chris Martin was completely, um, you know, didn't have any chances whatsoever to to score. They restricted them to just four shots in the game. Um, and really, it was just a run-of-the-mill home win. Um, I know we'll talk about Derby in a second, but I think there are players across the team who deserve big credit. I mean, Johnny Williams, again, getting another assist and proving how good he is at this level. Uh, Cullen in the middle of the park absolutely ran things. Conor Gallagher with another fantastic strike. I've mentioned Bon, uh, Saar, a rock at the back as ever. All across the team here, you've got kind of eight, nine out of ten performances. And um, at the beginning of the season, there was reason, not reason to believe, but, you know, if anyone thought it was a flash in the pan, I think that could have been justifiable. Whereas now, um, I'd be very. I think things would have to change at Charlton for them not to be at least a mid-table team this season, which is a huge achievement. It's so easy to overlook the fact that although Cullen was there last season, he came in on loan over the summer. Johnny Williams there last season, but came back to the club as well. Connor Gallagher signed on loan in the summer. Macaulay Bond signed in the summer. Jonathan Lecco signed in the summer. Tom Lockyer signed in the summer. These guys are contributing to the team. Field, Kyle and Hemed, the three subs, all summer signing. So the, the nucleus of that Charlton team, we spoke about it a lot. And it was one of our concerns pre-season that they were brilliant second half of last season in League One. But it wasn't the same Charlton side in terms of playing personnel. But it turns out when you've got the team... Uh, or, or rather the leader of the team in Lee Boyer and the team that he has around him in charge. <laughs> so far, the evidence is things go well and players come in and, and start contributing straight away. So good recruitment, but also a fantastic start to the season. Darren Prattley having something of a renaissance at this level as 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 a libero. I mean, he was basically, he's playing centre-back, but obviously as a midfield player, he, he's got the passing ability as well. So fantastic weekend for Charlton. Less so for their opponents at Derby County. Now, uh, Ryan Conway, who writes about Derby, who covers Derby County for The Athletic, who are, of course, our sponsors this season. Um, Ryan's review of this game, the title of the piece, 
Koku must correct Derby's deepening defensive shortcomings before the East Midlands Derby. Now, that game against Forest is actually a few weeks away. They've got three games coming up against opposition below them. They're currently in 15th place. And even if you set aside the high-profile off-pitch issues that they've had over the last month or so, it's the on-field stuff that Ryan tackles, George, in this article, focusing on defensive shortcomings. And it's hard not to agree with him and, and the way that he's highlighted some really concerning aspects to their play in the last month or so. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the feeling from, from the piece on The Athletic is that you know, the blame isn't necessarily at Koku's door. The feeling is that he's being let down by the players, whether that is, of course, the off-field stuff that we all know about. Um, you know, Lawrence started the game again on Saturday and didn't play particularly well or in terms of the personnel themselves. I mean, uh, even right at the top of the article, Ryan talks about how um, the feeling has returned that Koku's been let down. He again questioned the desire of his players and was irritated at conceding another set-piece goal. I mean, again, the, the feeling being that Koku has, has pinpointed these issues and has been unable to sort them out, whether that's because the player's lacking or, or himself. I mean, who are we to really to know that at the moment? But Ryan seems to suggest it's the it's the players letting him down. Uh, similarly, he draws attention to Keller Roos and his current form, which isn't looking particularly strong. Again, I think this is not a massive surprise that Roos isn't a, an elite-level championship keeper. And then he goes on at the end to say Koku should consider the next three games against opposition below their current 15th place as testing ground for the tightening up of a leaky defence before another visit to the city ground to face high-flying Nottingham Forest. Um, and then, and, and if we repeat the three 0 were to happen, the inquest will intensify. And I think that suggests to me that whilst people are happy to retain some faith in Koku at the moment and look at the players being at fault, given the run of games that's to come, um, these next three or four games are going to be the ones where, if there isn't a mark, you know, a marked improvement in, in the performances and the results, then maybe the attention will start to look at the manager as well. But. Um, given what's happened this season, I think it's very hard to, and, and the difficult job that Koku came into, given the squad churn and the return of, of, of loan players, um, it's hard to look past um, him being let down. But at the same time, I think that Derby are, are pretty quickly sleepwalking towards uh, being in a relegation battle. And that is unthinkable to, to most people involved at the club. One of the features, I think, of, of a team who's players are potentially, let's say, letting down the manager, i.e. just not quite, I don't want to say giving their all or whatever it is, but just just not on the right wavelength at all, uh, is a team that concedes a lot of goals from set pieces. And, and it's something that Ryan focuses on. It's something that he writes, Johnny Jackson, Lee Bowyer, isolated before the game, saying we think we can create a chance or two from set pieces. And there was a goal from Naby Sarr. Um, also, the first goal, which Ryan breaks down, uh, sort of anatomy of a goal conceded. This also lends itself to just three bad decisions from individual players. Jaden Bogle getting caught high up the pitch. Johnny Williams moving into the space down the left channel. Curtis Davies too slow to get across. And then the ball uh, into the middle. And there was Macaulay Bond getting the right side of Matt Clark, or from Clark's perspective, the wrong side to fire past Roos at the near post. So there's there's four individual players in one sequence uh, not sort of living up to expectation, and, and that is a concern. Only two clean sheets in the league this season as well in uh, in 12 games. So um, some concern, we won't we won't stick the knife in anymore, but as you say, some important games to come and a brilliant piece highlighting all, all, all of the concerns by Ryan Conway on The Athletic. George, you wrote a piece about Posh. We're going to touch on Posh later on in the pod, and uh, if anyone wants to sign up to The Athletic, you can have a free trial Check out all the good football writing on site, including Alex's piece on Posh, including Conway's piece on Derby, and many, many more. If you use the URL theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20, you'll get that free trial, but you'll also get 50% off going forward. So it's just a, a couple of pounds per month for essentially the, the best stable of football writing uh, on the World Wide Web. Um, next batch of, of teams is... Teams with Welsh managers for whom it was especially nice to win matches on the weekend. A uh, bit of a mouthful, but Stoke, Nathan Jones, Reading, Mark Bowen. <laughs> Which of those two do you want to do you want to start with? There, Stoke obviously beating Fulham, comfortable home win for Stoke. You haven't said that very often. Uh, and Reading getting a late, late, late winner against Preston in Bowen's first game in charge. Yeah, we have to start with Stoke. Um, 
you know, although you know, we'll get on to the Reading result, which is obviously massive for God, you for just hate involved, Reading, don't you, mate? Everyone involved there, but the the Stoke story here, um, arguably the you know the, the result of the weekend in terms of the narrative, let's say, because I mean Stoke uh, and Nathan Jones, we thought that story was was basically over, and um, I think the timing of the if it wasn't for the timing of the international break, I think it probably would have been. Um, if the you know the game um, that they won at Swansea had come a couple of weeks later, I think it would have been somebody else in charge. Um, but Nathan Jones has picked up six points from two games, and against Fulham has uh, put out a team who were just against one of the fancy teams in the league against a team who we've seen run riot on on many occasions this season. They were such good value for their win. Um, Campbell scoring his first goal for the club um, with a really well taken finish showing they have yet another striker who should be pretty effective at this level um, and on the quest highlights uh, there was a mention that, that Lee Gregory and Nathan Jones have spent a lot of time together in the last couple of weeks during the international break with Jones trying to get the best out of Gregory and it, he was man of the match with an assist and the penalty goal so that's obviously paid off as well and I mean, there's a long way still to go for Stoke um, and we have to caveat this new run. I mean, it's not as if Nathan Jones is suddenly a genius for getting back-to-back victories for Stoke. This should be the level that they are performing at. They should be picking up points at this rate. Um, but there won't be many teams that get six points from going to Swansea than hosting Fulham this season. And if he can maintain this run of form, where before that wobble against Huddersfield and Forest, there were signs of something of a of a comeback with that point away at Brentford. So um it's an, I wouldn't say it's an exciting time to be a Stoke fan, but I think they're a team now who look to have finally, possibly got over um, the malaise that, that a relegation has brought them to for the last 14, 15 months. Um, huge couple of games coming up away at Sheffield Wednesday on Tuesday night um, and then and then away at Millwall. If they can get you know four points from those two games, Nathan Jones should be sitting pretty happy. But again, you can see, despite these six points, if this week goes badly for Jones, it's back to square one again because they are still, you know, in, in lowly twenty third place when a promotion bid was was expected of them. Do you like the post match uh, chest thumping, screaming celebration in front of uh, in front of the fans that that Jones has been doing the last few weekends? Yeah, I, I couldn't love it more. I don't think I absolutely <laughs> love it. I've seen some people suggest it's a bit cringe. Why? I think that's just sort of general football rivalry and not wanting to enjoy something from another team, but. Uh, I think if I was in maybe not a slightly different vibe away from home than it is home, I guess. But if I'd been in the away end, away at Swansea, and he'd come over and done that, I, I probably would have burst into tears just from the pure emotion of it all. Um, a nice reference from him uh, of expected goals in his post-match interview as well, which, you know, things you love to see. Um, Mark Bowen won his first game in charge of Reading. We know that his appointment caused a fair amount of consternation amongst the fan base. We questioned how you get to a point where your sporting director in charge of the, the mid to long term running of the football operations of a club ends up being appointed the manager when he's leading the search for a new manager. Uh, there's a bit more info on that over the last few days that's come from Bowen himself, uh, essentially saying that he didn't know Gomez was going to be sacked and it wasn't his decision that came from above him. When he was asked to draw up a list of potential candidates, he did so. And then a couple of days later, he gets a call from the chairman just as he's got a shortlist of sort of three. Uh, and the chairman just says, I want you to take the job. Will you please take it? Uh, to which he, he he trots out the usual, you know, you'd be mad not to not to take the job. And, and I agree with, with that. Do I think that that's the best way to appoint a manager? Uh, no. Is it a bit odd that you even have a sporting director if you're not going to tell him that you're sacking the manager and then just going to appoint him as manager and, and not go with <laughs> with the actual sort of process that he would have gone through? Not really. Um, the positives from the weekend with a late winner from Miazga is, is that Ajaria was brilliant. They looked a lot more solid than they had in the last few weeks against Jose Gomez. Um, all good stuff, uh, you know, for that game and a good start for him. We have seen, however, these sorts of improvements in the last... Two times they changed managers with Clement, with Gomez. You know, this all all kind of happened as well. So yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see a few weeks, see if it's a bit more robust than than that or whether it's a, more of a general malaise around the club. Well, there was quite a funny um, interview with Mark Bowen after the game where he said, you know, when you become a new manager, you, you make these players take so much on board that you, um, you're worried that it's going to be too much for them when they get out on the pitch. 
which basically translated is I told these guys loads of things before they went out there and therefore the turnaround of fortunes, um, you know, it's clearly worked, which I think is a little bit much because as we've said in the past, that Reading have, have been pretty unlucky in recent weeks um, not to pick up more points than they, than they were doing. And there wasn't a great deal in this performance that was totally different from what we saw under, under Jose Gomez. Um, obviously, the, the players that were reintroduced, um, Charlie Adam coming off the bench, I'll leave it up to you guys as to whether or not that is a good move going forward, but he seems to do okay. Um, George Baldock, sorry, Sam Baldock, uh, coming off the bench as well, a player who hadn't featured un- under Gomez this season um, very much at all. So interesting to see these players coming back into it. Um, I think that this is quite a good job um, for Mark Bowen to get. I don't think he'll have to do too much right in order for it to get better. Um, because as we say, Reading were unlucky at times this season and definitely have a squad that shouldn't be down there. So um, so long as he doesn't do too much wrong, I, I reckon the, the you know the poor relationship between the fans and the manager won't last too long and we can probably expect to see more, more results like this. We've spoken a lot about Leeds and West Brom. They're the current top two. They are the favourites to finish in the top two. They both had narrow 1-0 wins on the weekend. I think straying into the territory of deserved wins but even in the admission of of a lot of the fans who tweeted in Sunday scout reports to us um, West Brom kind of not at their best and grinding out that win against a a Borough team who were somewhat improved from that horrendous display we saw against Birmingham before the international break and then Leeds actually quite impressed some of their fans with the performance of Birmingham at Ellen Road Um, Jude Bellingham especially getting a nod from a couple of Leeds fans and you know they should know um, when a, 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 a young player getting minutes looks like the next big thing because they've had plenty of talented players in their 100-year history. Congratulations to Leeds and their fans for existing for 100 years. That was a a wonderful um, affair, wasn't it, on the weekend? Great to see so many legends of of Leeds United history and Danny Mills (laughs) on the pitch as well. We're going to move on, though. The the West London 3-2 gang, George, that is Brentford 2-0 down with eight minutes of regular time against Millwall to play and winning 3-2, and or it's Hull losing 3-2 to QPR, who get their fourth away win of the season, having only got five last season. Um, Which one do you like there? I'll say one thing first on on Hull QPR, and that's that um, I think about, yeah, about 18 months after it started, I think the the Jack Grealish for England campaign is finally going to be over in a couple (laughs) of weeks' time. How have you got Grealish into this? Wait for it. Uh, I think we're finally going to get there, which is great news. So we can move on to the next campaign. And um, a very easy for England is quite clearly the next uh, the next <laughs> campaign that's going to get my support. Because, I mean, it reminds me a lot of watching Grealish, where this is a guy who not only is is too good for this league, and that's quite obvious now. And he's, you know, he's only, what, 21, 22. So he's got improving to do. He is so good that I don't see why he won't be, you know, elite good like proper elite good really like well I just don't see he's got absolutely everything Mm. he has every single facet to your game that you need to be an elite level footballer and when he does and if he does get that big move I hope it's going to be you know a move that takes him to um, one of the better uh, Premier League clubs let's say rather than having to go somewhere where he may not be able to to do what he does at the moment due to kind of defensive responsibilities he his dribbling ability and his creativity and his swagger on a football pitch is just so much better the most players and watching him you know we spoke about it a lot this season already um we spoke about it on sky sports a couple of weeks ago but this game was just he's basically just started taking the piss now um which is <laughs> which is you know you can only really do it if you are that good yeah. um and you know the, the way he took his penalties is, is one thing with the with the with the stutter and just kind of mugging george long off twice um but the way he wins that first penalty is absurd every fast i mean every single part of his game as an attacking player is top level and I'm so excited to see what happens uh, next. So that's what I'll say about that game. On the other side with, with Millwall, uh, Brentford, the thing that struck me was it was just, it was the most un-Millwall thing to do and the most un-Brentford thing to do. Well, You've it, got, I mean, when was the last time Millwall went 2-0 up away from home anyway, <laughs> let alone then ship three goals? When was the last time Brentford ever were the ones coming back from a 2-0 from a deficit um, to, to grab points they thought they'd lost rather than vice versa? Um, this is a game, yeah, it was... It bucked the trend and is massive for Thomas Frank because I sent you a text at 2-0 saying bye bye Thomas mm. and then you sent me one uh, at the end of the game saying hello Thomas and uh, <laughs> I think that probably sums up the game quite nicely yeah a, a fantastic goal from Brian Bamu 
cutting in from the right and, and looping it into the top corner. Ben Rama with two assists as well. A, a bit of talk that I saw online that many of the fans at Griffin Park frustrated with Ben Rama. We spoke about how he hadn't quite hit top level yet this season in terms of pure um, top level output, no goals and, and no assists before the weekend, but two assists uh, and was a big part of that comeback. So uh, the, the other, I guess, subject of some dismay from the Bees fans is uh, Jensen, the, the midfielder, the Danish midfielder they bought, who came with a very high reputation, certainly from Denmark, who a few years ago was ripping up the Danish league before um, having a, a bit of a having his career stalled somewhat um, after a big move to Italy, but he uh, was meant to be quite good and to all intents and purposes is just coasting through games, is not contributing at all. Uh, and given he was sort of down to replace Sawyers, that is uh, not ideal. So while losing Mopai might have been the concern, actually with Watkins' goal return, um, possibly less of a concern, but actually replacing Sawyers apparently is the, is the big one at the moment. Last but not least in the championship and standing all on their own because there's nothing obvious to pair them with. Uh, it's Wigan Athletic. They beat Forest at home in front of the Sky cameras on Sunday afternoon. <sighs> George, mate, listen to this. Since they returned to the championship at the start of last season, Wigan's home record is... 15 wins, 9 draws and 5 defeats, which is 54 points in 29 games, which is 1.86 points per game, which is a very, very tidy record indeed. Away from home, 2 wins, 6 draws, 21 defeats, which is 12 points from 29 games. So a 42-point swing between their home and their away record since being back in the Championship. I honestly can't explain it at all I've tried to analyze things and I don't really know how what I would say is from a forest perspective this will be not not necessarily a shock to the system but the, one of the first times this season where they haven't swaggered out of a game and said you know great game management what team cohesion and determination we've showed to to nick a win here or to get a draw they they just lost it and and they deserve to lose it yeah I mean I'm going to try and one up you with a stat oh you nice. can ask people whose Wigan stat they prefer okay and I'd like to know if this is some kind of a record. So Wigan, Nottingham Forest, you know, you see a 1-0 win, you think probably not a great game. 20, what is it, outfield players, 26 outfield players used um, in the game. Both teams making three subs. What's going to happen next? Only four players out of the 26 didn't have a shot in the game. What? How unbelievably... Four out of 26? Yeah. That's unbelievable. I know. So Worrell, Bostock, uh, Williams and Pilkington are only four players not to have a shot. Every single other player in, in the whole pitch and on the pitch had a shot. Oh, great one that's for the cameras. That's basically all I've got to say about the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only other thing I would add is uh, Paul Taylor writing for The Athletic, focusing on the fact that with Graben being rotated out, given the, 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 the fact that the games are coming thick and fast, Rafa Mir getting in a few decent positions, but not quite finishing. The, the concern, I think, amongst some of the fan base is aside from Graben, there's really no pure goal scorer and maybe that's something that needs looking at in January um, but to be fair to Mir and this is what Lamucci said after the game you know if he'd scored one of his chances he was pretty close with a couple then you wouldn't be talking about him not being good enough or looking a bit rusty in front of goal you, you know you'd be starting to get excited so I'm going to get ahead of the curve and put myself in team Rafa Mir um, I imagine Graben will be back into the team for the next few games from the start. Uh, but I am backing Mir to start scoring off the bench uh, when he comes on for Forest. So um, you, you've heard it here first is what I'm claiming. Um, but yes, uh, from a Wigan point of view, big win. I almost don't want to overreact because every time they win a game at home, I'm like, maybe this could be the start of something. And every time they lose a game away, I'm like, God, they're so bad away from home. So a, a, a good goal from Jamal Lowe. We said in League One last season, you just you can't give him space to move into. I think against teams who defend deep, deep block, Lowe's the sort of player that sometimes struggles to, to create, uh, struggles to score, but certainly in a counter-attacking team or with space to move into, he is absolutely deadly. So that was a, a, a good winning goal for him. Moving on from a championship weekend, uh, I wanted to share that you called that weekend a great weekend for XG, which really tickled me. Um, just in the fact that pretty much all of the games went almost entirely on balance of play. And, and that that is really something that we like to see. We're going to move on to League One. 
I think we have to start with either Wimbledon or Accrington. And I want to know from you which one you'd, you'd like to start with. I mean, Accrington ending Ipswich's unbeaten start to the season in front of the Sky cameras. And Wimbledon making it three in a row and working out that actually they don't want Wally Downs back after his suspension. Well, yeah. Sacking him and moving forward with, without Wally. W- which of those two teams do you want to start talking about first? I think there's a lot to talk about and unpack with AFC Wimbledon after this weekend. Um, because it was a interesting performance not often you see games go this way where AFC Wimbledon were came on came into this game on the back of a good run of form good goal scoring form and were absolutely battered by Pompey for the first half I mean no two ways about it no disrespect for it to AFC Wimbledon at all but they were lucky to go into half time at one all Marquis missing a very good chance Naylor missing a good chance as well but then in the um in the second half they were much, much improved and were really, really good value for their for their um, for their win. Uh, had plenty of chances to uh, to score previously. Um, there was a bit of a uh, a reliance, you have to say, on on Marcus Force to get the goals prior to this game. He was taken off um, when they were chasing a goal, which I'm sure AFC Wimbledon fans at the time were not particularly happy with. But they got that deserved winner, and they are now on the back of you know four victories in a row. Um, interesting to see the reaction to the Wally Downs news where seemingly, I mean, I assumed um, that the Wimbledon fans were pretty nonplussed about it, but there seems to be a fair bit of annoyance about how this has been treated and how Wally Downs has been treated. Um, but it seems to me that purely in footballing terms, they are, um, they've been a better footballing side, a better attacking side, certainly under Glenn Hodges. Um, and going forward, they're in a better position. It's such a weird situation, wasn't it? I mean... <laughs> For him to have been suspended initially by the club and then to pick up a, a two-week suspension, I think it was, from the FA, which was down to finish, I think, after the next game. But they hadn't won a game this season in their first 11. He gets suspended and the interim manager wins three on the bounce. Like It would take serious nuts for those in charge at Wimbledon nuts. to go... Do you know what, Wally, mate, actually? Straight back in, Glyn Hodges with mm. your 100% record, uh, having inspired the team to, to three fantastic results. You can head back uh, in, into a, a support role and, and Wally come back in. But yeah, you're right. The fans, some of them not thrilled with the way it's been handled. But personally, I would find it difficult to argue with the decision overall. Um, you mentioned Portsmouth's um, battering of, of Wimbledon in the first half. I did point out on the Quest show, 10 shots on target. So... Uh, 10 shots from Trot in the Wimbledon goal. And Wimbledon uh, cantering towards safety under Glyn Hodges. Uh, George Accrington beating Ipswich. George Accrington. George Accrington beating Ipswich uh, on Sunday. Colby Bishop with two goals. A fantastic day for him. Player signed in the summer from non-league and doing the business live on Sky, beating an Ipswich side who were uh, fairly well clear considering we're not that far through this season. Um, But it's Sam Finlay that I want to talk about. Really interesting player as well. Another signing from non-league. It's a bit of a theme here, and that's because we know in the pool that they're shopping in Accrington in in League One terms, they have to be very creative. They simply cannot compete with some of the teams in their division when it comes to things like finances, facilities, etc. And they have to be very, very creative. The last few years, this is a team that's been built on, and we've spoken about it a lot. Sean McConville, Billy Key, Seamus Keneally, uh, and to an extent, Mark Hughes, a centre-back. What we're seeing this season, which needed to happen, I think, if we're honest, is starting to get contributors from from different places. And that's really a reflection of of good recruitment. Um, Bishop is part of that. But Finlay in midfield, just doing so much for them this season. Um, there was a great piece in The Athletic about Accrington a few weeks ago and Finlay came across really, really well. Uh, he came from Fylde and seems like quite an interesting character. So uh, I think he still manages a Sunday league team or he <laughs> did up until very recently. So he's just obsessed with the game and, and really thriving so in it. So if you're listening, Colby, um, you know, we're available on Sundays and we'd yeah. love to play. Really, really thriving uh, in this Accrington team, which is fantastic. Just a, a word. We spoke about the fact they have relied on McConville and Key in, in past seasons. Uh, Key, of course, not available this season. He's been struggling 
with depression and bulimia in the last few months and the Ipswich fans who packed out about half of, of the stadium uh, unfurled a banner yesterday saying Billy Key you're not alone uh, it was a, a really wonderful gesture from the Ipswich fans uh, of course we would throw our support behind that we would suggest to anyone listening to the pod who's having a tough time at the moment or at any time to be aware that uh, it's good to talk and that there are plenty of, of people ready and willing to help uh, when times get difficult, including the EFL's sponsor charity, Mind, um, who we have spoken to in the past as well. So um, from Ipswich point of view, George, anything to, to be concerned about there? It was always going to happen. I mean, that's at the end of the day that the run they were on was unsustainable. We said it before that their defence certainly is one of the best in the league, but they were never going to continue to concede at the rate that they were conceding at. This day was going to come. Um, the key thing now for um, Ipswich fans and, and, and for Paul Lambert and the players is just to put out, out the memory, look at the table, see where they are and crack on doing what they were doing because, um, yeah, this this day, it's it's a re- almost irrelevant when it came and who it came to. Um, this, had, this defeat was going to come at some point and it's now how they react to it that's going to be important. A couple of other things to touch on from the League One weekend. Wickham beat Sunderland 1-0 at Adams Park. Uh, to all intents and purposes, this game was not one for the neutral, I think it's fair to say. Um, there were some suggestions that Wickham's more agricultural style of play was was in full flow on Saturday. But I think it's fair to say that Sunderland also attempted uh, more long balls than Wickham over the course of the game. And uh, it feels like in terms of Sunderland's style of play, that is still... Uh, well, it hasn't changed overnight, put it that way, under Phil Parkinson, which you wouldn't expect it to do. Um, it seemed quite apt, really, that Sunderland's biggest chance, I suppose, or their, the closest they came to scoring was a McGeady solo run, which ended in a long shot, which hit the bar. That's the, that's the sort of thing we've seen all probably too much in the last year or so. That's not a slight on McGeady, but you know, everyone recognises now that Sunderland have to find a way to, to create more chances for other players. Um, but Wickham is still in second place. And as I said on, on Quest on Saturday, it, it's not a fluke. I suppose the, the interesting question, I'm, I'm going to, you're not going to thank me for this, but an unnamed friend of the pod messaged yesterday and says, Wickham a second, we know that it's no fluke, they deserve to be where they are. But he said, what I want to know is, how good are they really? And if you had a blank sheet of paper and had to write the teams down in League One in order from best to worst, where would you, where would you have them? Um, and it's quite an interesting one. I mean, considering we had them, or I had them basically getting relegated in the summer, to even have them in the top 10 is is a hell of a recognition that they are just so much better than we expected and really impressive. But I still found it hard to have them above eighth, I think, at this I stage. Like this is why one of my opinions that I normally get slated for when I say stuff like that. Um, but not, not, not that I'm disagreeing with you, but um, you know, I'm sure a few Wiccan fans will just tell you to look at the table, even, <laughs> even though we're on the 21st of October. Um, I think there's there's enough evidence now through 13 games and one defeat and crucially the teams that they've beaten. It's not like they've had a particularly easy run of fixtures. Um, I think that right now Wickham are certainly a top six team. Um, if I were to choose any team in the country that I wouldn't fancy um, Oxford's chances against away from home right now, it probably would be Ipswich, Wickham and Peterborough, I'd have thought, would be the, the three. So in that sense... Um, you know they probably are running a little bit hot they're probably um, not going to be able to maintain this level throughout the season but uh, I think it would be a brave man to to tell me right now that Wickham aren't going to finish in the top six you wrote an article last week for The Athletic about Ivan Tony, Moisa Marcus Madison Uh, on the weekend Posh were missing Madison they were missing Reed in midfield but they went to Gillingham and they won 2-1 a really good quite gritty away performance it was an amazing goal that got them ahead and then an ESA penalty so not a performance for the ages but no player in the EFL has reached double figures in goals yet apart from ISA and Tony who play for the same team they are the only players in double figures in the EFL and that is just a ridiculous stat um, one interesting thing I wanted to ask you when you were talking to people for your piece am I right in suggesting or did I read this right, that there was a bid for Issa in, like, towards the end of the transfer window, as in when he'd only been at the club for a month or so? That's amazing, if so. Yeah, I mean, it took me by surprise as well, but um, the sources at the club that we spoke to for the piece, 
Um, you're not going to get m- many better sources than than the people we spoke to who would know about this stuff. Said that, um, yeah, said that there are bids for both Tony and Issa on on deadline day. So um, I'll be interested to know who uh, who it was who came in for Issa just a few weeks after he'd um, you know he'd he'd moved there, especially given that he didn't have the best of starts either. Um, but that is the case. Yes, interesting, interesting. Uh, Doncaster beat Bristol Rovers. Um, I was trying to think about whether this means Donia are on their way into the playoffs in the next few weeks. Then I looked at their fixtures. They are one of the quirkiest teams around, and you know I'm interested in EFL quirks. They've played nine of the 11 top half teams, or the ele- because they're obviously in the top half. So they've already played nine of 11 top half teams, which made me think that they're going to have a, a nice easy run of fixtures coming up and maybe we could expect them to move up the table. But in the 12 games they've played... They've had eight home games and four away games. So they've still got loads more away games to sort of redress the balance. And that makes me think that we can expect a, uh, a lower points tally when they start hitting that run of away games. So um, basically what I'm saying is not really sure with Donny, but we're watching Fleetwood at Coventry on Wednesday night. Good time to be going to watch Fleetwood. Potentially not such a good time to be going to watch Coventry after a, a, a poor few weeks for them. But... Are you quite excited to see the Cod Army in action? I mean, 4-1 winners on the weekend with Chet Evans and a Paddy Madden hat-trick. They are cooking quite nicely at the moment. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, I mean, they've been going, I guess, a bit under the radar all season, if you're looking at the data side of things, consistently in that kind of top group. Um, and this was definitely a performance and a result that um, I think will make people realise just how good they are. Um especially having bounced back from a 1-0 defeat um, at home to you know the promotion rival. If anyone has any aspirations to go up this season, they know that if they finish above Ipswich, it's probably going to happen. Um, yeah, and they were rampant, and not many teams will score four against Burton. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's definitely true. I was surprised to hear that it was a first um, career hat-trick for Paddy Madden, mm. who's now on nine goals despite only starting six games and coming off the bench six times. Um, and that just shows the array of attacking talent they have because they have to try and shoehorn both Madden and and Evans into a system. Um, they which, did that last season and they it felt like it almost held them back a little bit because they lacked a bit of balance elsewhere. But this season they're managing to get the balance right. And the big difference is they are creating those two players a lot of chances, which means they're depends. scoring a lot of goals. Yeah, but I think they're sticking to a, a system that works. When I've spoken about my admiration for Coyle, who plays um, on kind of as a marauding wing-back on that right-hand side. But the midfield three of Coots, uh, Dempsey and Rossiter is so good mm. that therefore you can't have Madden and, and Evan starting every game because then you've got the creative talents of Morris and Burns on either side of the striker. Um, if I was a League One striker and I had Burns and Morris alongside me, I'd fancy myself to at least score one goal in the season. So I think Hunter got these... double-figure assists last season yeah, as well. Exactly. So they have so much quality across the pitch. I've said it many times that you know Barton, um, as a manager, I, I have a lot of time for. I think that guys who you see come in um, at this level as rookies um, there are very few who are as impressive as Barton is in terms of getting a, a functional side together um, and yeah especially after after that disappointing defeat um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Fleetwood on, on Wednesday night because I think they could be one of the best teams in the league. First v second if you take experimental 361s League One expected goals table. That's what we're going to watch on Wednesday night. Um, I'm very excited about that. We are too. Last one on League One, George. Uh, how much do you love Carl Robinson and Oxford United right now? I imagine it must be at a, not an all-time high, but certainly a, a recent times high. Yeah, what's really fun about this season is normally when your team is good, you go into the season in August expecting to be quite good. So to go into a, <clears throat> to go into a season concerned... And then to be really good is really fun. Uh, so I hope it lasts for as long as possible. Um, the only issue we're going to have is, is come January, there's going to be a, a, a few players who are going to be, um, I'm sure, attracting interest from other clubs. The likes of, of Fosu, um, who's now scored six goals in seven games and is just looking... I mean, I don't understand how he was let go by, by, by Charlton for free. So he's got six and seven. Henry's got something like seven and seven. Yeah. Brannigan doing it all and in then, midfield and Taylor five and six wow um, Brannigan and Baptiste as well two other guys who are going to be um, attracting some attention so yeah it's, it's a great time to be an Oxford fan and uh, and you know the the pleasure of having a week off this week because it should have been the Berry game so they get a bit of a rest until Rochdale at home on Saturday wow 
And then next week, Carabao Cup, home to Sunderland, will be there. It's it's the Elec Classico, of course, Oxford against Sunderland. So very excited to be at the cast for that game and to see who progresses to the quarterfinals of that competition. League two, to finish us off, we've got a bonus interview with Steve Morrison at the end of the podcast. But let's tie off some of the big League 2 talking points from the weekend. Two massive 4-0 wins for teams that we haven't spoken about enough on this show this season, George, because they've kind of been quite mid tabley quite inconsistent. Talking about Cambridge and Leighton Orient. Starting with Cambridge, 4-0 winners against Exeter. I mean, if, if Fleetwood beating Burton and scoring four goals is surprising because Burton don't normally concede four, Exeter conceding four is next level. It just doesn't happen. What's funny about this one is we do the betting show second half of the week and those who listen will know this already, but those who don't listen, George picked Cambridge to win three weeks on the trot and didn't get any returns from it, but you knew something was coming. And then the one week that you didn't pick him on the betting show they go and beat the league leaders 4-0. That is uh, quite funny. Yeah, I did back them though. Although maybe I shouldn't say that. But um, <clears throat> yeah, a fantastic result for them. I'm, it had been coming, I'm, right? I'm surprised. Yeah, it had been coming. Like everyone else though, I didn't expect it to be Exeter who they did it against. Because Exeter defensively this season have been so, so strong. Um, still only conceded 15 in the season despite conceding four on, on Saturday. But as you say, it had been coming. Cambridge consistently performing at a high level. And not getting their, their just rewards. Very much the and data darlings, I would suggest, of League Two. And, you know, maybe some um, justice in the way that their goals came about. The first, a pretty lucky deflection. Uh, the final goal, the fourth, was a pretty terrible goalkeeping error from, from Maxted, who caught a lob and then suddenly panicked that he was going back over his line. So um, just kind of dropped the ball onto um, the foot of Andrew Dallas. Um, but yeah, there's there's seems to be quality throughout this team and, and I think that it's an exciting time to be a Cambridge fan and maybe this will be the result that um, proves to them that they can kind of do it at this level and despite the poor run of form they're, they're in 10th spot they're mm. on 19 points only two points off the playoffs so you know a, a lot to be excited about I would say if you are a Cambridge fan Good from Colin Calderwood this season I think we can certainly agree and, and, and in a way that we didn't necessarily predict before the start of the season but a couple of other things that have caught my eye um, the new owner Paul Barry who has been involved with the club um, directly and indirectly for a long time is a, is a big fan of the club um, when I was researching for the show we did for Five Live last week about football club ownership and sustainability in football I stumbled across a few things that Paul Barry had written on the club website um, statements and information to fans and explanations of some of the things that he was doing, some of the quite tricky things he was doing, like reducing the playing budget at times. And I was struck by the fact that this is the sort of owner that if I hypothetically owned a club, I would want to be like, and also the sort of owner that you want to have as a fan. Not only does he have the club in his blood, so to speak, but the way that he does things, the way that he keeps fans in the loop, treats them like adults, it just makes it's just exactly how you should do things. So I wanted to give him a, a nod as well and hope he enjoyed this one. Um, but also, they lost Giovanni Brown in the summer. We spoke about that transfer quite a lot. We thought Brown is going to improve Colchester, improve their ability to create chances. And actually, he's not had a huge impact there. We also said, this is a Cambridge team that really struggled going forward last season and they appear to have lost their best creator. But actually, they've managed to turn themselves into a much more well-rounded attacking team. Uh, and it, it speaks to a player like George Maris, who we thought might leave in the summer, but stayed and has been a big part of, of this team. But also some summer signings like Luke Hannant, like Jack Rolls, who's on loan from Tottenham and looks like another really talented Premier League loanee. Dropped all the way down to League Two to get his first bit of senior game time and appears to be thriving, scoring from range. Uh, and Sam Smith up front, who had that tough time on loan at Oxford from Reading. Um, but the Cambridge fans really enjoying what he's offering so far this season. So good time to be a Cambridge fan. Good time to be an Orient fan. George, three wins in a row, a 4-0 win. Still not entirely clear if Carl Fletcher, the new manager, is claiming this one. Um, I don't think he is, but Carl Fletcher, the new manager, raised some eyebrows. He comes from Bournemouth, where he's been the loans manager for the last few years. And he steps into quite a good position because compared to a few weeks ago when I was maybe starting to get a little concerned about Orient 
Uh, three wins on the bounce, and uh, they're in very good form. They're in 12th, five wins, four draws, five defeats. The epitome of a mid-table team at the moment. Uh, what did you like about this display and this 4-0 win? Well, you say the epitome of a mid-table team. I mean, if they carry on the way they're going, they're going to be anything but, because the run of form is um, is fantastic. And to go to Grimsby and, and beat them 4-0, uh, not many people saw coming. And uh, as you say, I think it was Embleton's last game in charge. So Carl Fletcher takes over for the trip to Plymouth this midweek for his first game. A little bit trickier, you'd think, there with Plymouth picking up some good form. Um, big concerns, though, for Grimsby, I must say. Um, a really good start to the season uh, seems to have, um, you know, it's a distant memory now. Uh, recent performances, the 2-1 loss at Stevenage, really, really poor. Uh, the 1-0 loss at home to Mansfield, very poor. Uh, again, um, you know, it was only five games ago they went to Exeter and won 3-1 and that feels like a long time ago. Uh, Michael Jolly, we gave him credit early on in the season for finding, um, uh, you know, a strike trio that was working well. Um, but he seems to have decided that that he doesn't want to play that trio anymore. Green, Hansen and and um, Ogbu, both Green and Ogbu coming off the bench. Um, Rose and, and Vernon started either side of Hansen and, and had very little, if any, joy at all. Um, I worry maybe inexperience with Jolly here's meaning some indecision over over um, players and, and over team selection um, because they look a very different team to the one we saw early on in the season. So um, great news for Leighton Orient, brilliant for Fletcher to come into now um, on the back of this good run because um, he's suddenly taking over a team with uh, in, in, on, a, on a solid footing rather than one um, scrambling to to keep their head above water. But for Grimsby, things need to sort themselves out pretty quickly or they're going to be sucked into a relegation battle that doesn't really exist because there's only one team. Yeah, apologies if epitome of a mid-table team sounded like a negative. I more mean that based on what we've seen this season, they went on a really bad run and now they're on a really good run. And if that's the sort of... If they're going to be consistently inconsistent, I guess is what I'm saying, then they will probably be a mid-table team. And I would consider that to be a fairly good outcome for their return to, to the EFL. I was there the other day with Quest off the field. Things are really positive. Uh, of course, it's only a few years removed from a man that essentially tried to ruin the club and, and almost succeeded taking them out of the league. Um, but I think they're doing the right things. It feels like they're moving in the right direction. And I can't wait to see what Carl Fletcher's like because a lot of people suggesting they needed someone with a bit more experience in the division. But all it takes is for you to be a very talented young manager and experience in the division doesn't make much of a difference. Look at the likes of Matt Taylor at Exeter and David Artel at Crew doing so well. Um, Artel's crew got a great nod from Swindon fans uh, that tweeted us this weekend saying that Crew, a fantastic team, the best team they've played and deserved winners despite Swindon going 1-0 up in that game. So it was a good home win for Crew. And more good home wins across the board for Northampton and Bradford, Newport and Plymouth. We're not going to go into detail on those because, frankly, they were expected home wins. So just a couple more games to touch on. Uh, Cheltenham edging that game against Walsall, 2-1. Um, Cheltenham managing games really well this season and, and looking like a, a team that I think could have some longevity this season. I don't think they're blowing teams away necessarily. Um, and I think their conversion rate is probably high enough that it's just nodding towards unsustainable. But their back three is unbelievably good. Uh, Greaves on loan from Hull, hadn't played senior football before and is already playing well enough that Hull must be thinking, can we have him back in January and, and slot him straight in? Because he looks like a brilliant prospect. Um, Tozer and Raglan, more experienced veteran EFL centre-backs, but just as good. We cover these leagues really closely, so it's rare that something would really surprise me like this. But when I looked at the table at 5pm on Saturday and saw Macclesfield ninth, I almost fell out of my chair, hypothetically. Met Is that the right word? Yeah, not metaphorically. No. Uh, no. Well, I, I guess it kind of works. Both. How are they ninth, George? What's happening there? We thought they were going to be relegated this season because of all the off-field problems. Yeah, the old Charlton Macclesfield relegation doubles really ticking along nicely. <laughs> um, another great performance for them and another good result. Um, they are edging past teams um, by the skin of their teeth. But Darren McMahon has come in. He had a, a tricky start and now suddenly unbeaten in their last four with uh, with eight points from those games and two back-to-back -back victories against um, Oldham and Port Vale. All's looking much rosier. Um, it's going to get tougher now with a trip to Cheltenham followed by hosting Bradford, but they continue to be the side that you rule out at your peril. Um, so, I mean, I I'm as surprised as you are, but 
you know they're they're they're, they're carrying on the good work that Sol Campbell um, implemented there last season and arguably doing even better. They beat an Oldham side at Boundary Park whose fans are really starting to turn now. Um, not particularly against Dino Mamria, to be honest. I think, if anything, his appointment and the continued lack of form, the continued inconsistency from individual players, uh, it's almost highlighted what, if I'm honest, we kind of knew already to be true, which is that this is a team that's been put together in the wrong way, basically, um, not in a way that will lead to success uh, at this level, at, at League One level. We know it didn't because they were relegated and, and things haven't got any better. This is a team that was in League One two seasons ago and we're talking about them in 21st in League Two with 11 points from 14 games. So quite concerning times for Oldham and their fans. Um, and the only other thing to point out, what an amazing away win for Morecambe uh, at Colchester basically the biggest coupon buster of the weekend. Um, Morecambe's certainly the longest odds winner in the EFL. Colchester chucking in a stinker at a good time for Morecambe, but also then putting in their best performance of the season. And it looked on paper like it must have been a bit of a smash and grab. But if you look a little closer, um, look at balance of play, Morecambe very, very good for this. And that can only be encouraging because you only need to be 23rd to stay up this season in League Two. And wouldn't it be the most Morecambe thing in the world if they finished 23rd on goal difference? That's all that they need this season uh, and a very, very good away win for them. I'm very happy for the fans that travelled. George, link us in to the last part of this podcast because we were yeah, really excited and honoured to be able to talk to a man that's been in the news recently for a retirement. Yeah, Steve Morrison has called time on a brilliant career, um, you must say. Anyone who's seen him playing off and against their team as may not have enjoyed watching him as a, as a footballer. Those who had him, um, whether it's Millwall or, or Leeds or Stevenage or um, even Shrewsbury early on this season will know um, just how, how good a player he's been. And he retired last week. He's gone to Northampton um, as a coach and will be embarking on a managerial career. So we um, had a nice chance to have a quick chat with him about his decision. <laughs> So delighted to be joined by a, a bona fide EFL legend uh, in in Steve Morrison. Steve, you, your career started at Northampton Town. You're back there now as a coach, but in the middle, some pretty incredible stuff, um, mainly at, at Stevenage and at Millwall. Some brilliant times um, in in the top tier with Norwich, uh, a good spell at Leeds, and then obviously it, it ended at, at Shrewsbury Town as well, who you joined in the summer. So, I mean, firstly, just going to ask you what the what the overriding emotion is. Um, to call time on such a great playing career. Um, yeah, do you know what? It's 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 a decision that I've made, uh, so it sits really well with me. It's not something I've been forced into. So um, no, I, I look back, I look back and think a really good time. Uh, uh, I think mainly highs for me. I had the, obviously the lowest moment, obviously leaving Northampton first time around, and. and uh, uh, obviously, that's a low moment, but from that moment on, it's just been highs, even up until I decided to um, to call it a day. The last thing I did was be involved in a 4-3 a victory for Shrewsbury, <laughs> so uh, it's been a great time. I've loved it. Obviously, uh, as they say, all good things have to come to an end, and yeah. it's come to an end for me now. Um, but as I said, it was a decision that I made, and so because I've made it, it sits really well with me. I'm pleased, really pleased that I've been able to go straight back into work. Been on the training ground this morning with the lads. And yeah, it's just great. I feel I feel at home. I feel comfortable there. It's where I've spent a big part of my career. And uh, um, yeah, I'm just, just hopeful that now I can try and pass on a bit of what I've maybe learned. I'm sure I've learned something over the years. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you have. I mean, it, and I can pass that on to pass it on to the younger lads. Um, they're where I was about twenty years ago now. So. It, it's fair to say that most players would would dream of of getting kind of legendary status amongst a, a set of fans once in their career. But you've done it at least twice. I think it's fair to say at, at Stevenage Borough and then also at Millwall over three spells. Both clubs um, seemingly looking for a new manager at the time that you've taken yeah. the decision to retire. Um, obviously, you've gone to Northampton and you're aware that 
you know, you're going to have to learn a bit on the coaching side before t- taking on a managerial job. But were you ever thinking about putting your name forward for those jobs? Um, yeah, I'll put my name forward for the Stevenage job. I did that uh, officially a couple of weeks ago, but got a response back of they're going to look for someone, uh, possibly if they don't stick with the caretakers with a bit more experience. Yeah. And I've been advised by them to go and gain some experience as a number two. So I've had my first knockback in <laughs> the managerial world, which is fine. I'm going to get that. Obviously disappointed on a personal level because it's somewhere which I think would be a great starting block, especially I have a uh, affiliation with the fans there. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to go and be a number two at another club because that's not where I see myself. I see myself as number one, and and um, obviously, yes, the biggest thing is that I'm lacking lacking experience. But as I said, you have to get experience somehow. And um, yeah, I'll keep knocking on a few more doors and and see what happens. But until that point, I will be, as I said, throwing myself in fully at, um, at the level I'm at now and uh, coaching uh, coaching the academy boys at. Uh, in Northampton, the Millwall job, um, that's a bit out of my reach <laughs> yeah, right moment. now. Yeah. Um, at the moment, uh, don't get me wrong, if they'd rang me up and said, Steve, we want you to do it, then I would have done it. Um, but I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, uh, uh, I didn't want to put my name forward yet. Um, purely, purely, I don't think I'm 100% ready for it yet. Not that you were ever ready to manage Millwall. Um, and, um, yeah, I had too much of a relationship with, with Neil Harris and, and all that kind of, um, situation and just leaving the club and stuff like that. I didn't think it, it didn't sit right, it didn't sit right as the right time to uh, put my name forward for something like that. So, uh, um, but as I said, if that asked me to help out, I would have, uh, would definitely help. I would have definitely have helped, but, um, you talk about the need for experience um, and we're seeing, I think, a bit of a change in the last five or six years, at least in the last couple of years, with players who played at the very top level happy to take on jobs in the EFL. I mean, you're looking now, Sol Campbell looks pretty much nailed on to be taking his second job um, down in League One and League Two hmm. at, at South End. Do you think this is a good time for a player of, of someone of your your calibre as a player to be moving into that, making that transition than it was a, a few years ago? Yeah, I think that I think at the end of the day, uh, I think what what's good about uh, players that have just finished playing going into the management side is they're they're a lot more um, attached in a way to the um, to the dressing room because that dressing room's changed. The dressing room of twenty years ago isn't the dressing room of ten years ago, let alone the dressing room now and. The, the dressing room dynamics and the people that are in there um, is so different. I think the managers uh, that want to want to do it now that have been uh, maybe just finished playing or or thinking about finishing playing and and all those kind of stuff they understand it more because you've seen the change. I've seen the change over. I've lived the change for the twenty years. So I feel like those people are in a better position to be able to manage the people in the dressing room because. Um, some people can still do it but I think the vast majority uh, if you come into a dressing room with that real 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 old school mentality like it was when I first started coming through um, it just doesn't work overly I haven't seen it work I haven't noticed it work for the last five six years so um, I think there's I think there's lots of people that are doing it lots of people that are wanting to do it Um, and yeah it's nice to see the merry-go-round of the same managers getting the same jobs uh, changing. Absolutely. And, and just a final question before uh, we let you crack on with your day. Uh, anyone who saw you as a player knows exactly what what they were going to get. You would bully centre-backs, um, dominant in the air and a fantastic goal scorer. What kind of a manager do you envisage yourself being? Do you have a style of play that you'd look to, to, to play um, that would maybe represent or, or mirror your, your playing style? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. I don't. Um, I don't. 
I don't want to pigeonhole myself as a manager, as this is the way I play football. I want to be a manager that can adapt to different situations. I want to be a manager that is is not stubborn enough to feel like I have to stick to one formation because that's the way I want to play. Um, you group, you take over. Um, I said Sol Campbell, for example, goes and takes over Southend. Is he going to be able to play the same way he played at Macclesfield? Mm. Don't know. But how does he know until he goes in there and he assesses the squad? So maybe he's going to have to change. And I think a good coach nowadays, uh, or a good manager, is able to to cope or to get across the needs of each different formation that he needs to use that he might need to win a game. I think you look at the best of them, Pep Guardiola. Yes, he's got a style of play, like he keeps the ball, etc., etc., and lots of attacking play, but it's done in all different shapes and sizes, isn't it? It's not just done in a 4-4-2 or 4-3-3 or 3-5-2. It's done in yeah. lots of different ways, and I think that's the um, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of manager that shows that he 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 understands the game and he knows all the different ways of uh, getting it across and, and coaching it. So for me, it's, it's going to be being adaptable, being able to 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 manage the the hand that I've been dealt, and um, yeah, try and get the best out of people. And I think that's that's the biggest thing in football. It's about managing people, um, because ultimately that's who play the game.